Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I am Andy Boyd. Today on the program, we're talking with the authors of the book, A Revolution in Three Acts, The Radical Vaudeville of Burt Williams, Ava Tangway, and Julian Elting. So we're speaking with David Haydew and John Carey. David, John, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. I really enjoyed this book, and, and this isn't entirely clear from the title, but it's it's actually written in the form of a graphic novel, uh, so you get a lot of great uh, images of, of these performers and of the times that they lived in. Um, let's start there. Why did you decide you wanted to tell this story in that form of a, of a, of a graphic history? Well, we actually had in mind to do a book of graphic history before before we settled on this topic, it began with John and I, who are old college friends from NYU, wanting to do something together. John's a great artist. I admire him. I, 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 there aren't enough words to, to, to convey how deeply I admire John. And uh, I wanted us to do something together. So for for a while, we, you know, we brainstormed ideas. What could we do that would dem- – not just lend itself to imagery, but demand imagery. Where the where the where the where we could do a better book with images than we would do with text. And we settled on the world of vaudeville. Maybe John could pick that up there. Like, you know, why vaudeville and why imagery? John probably has some thoughts about that. Well, we we uh, uh, we had some feelings about the way vaudeville had been treated. Um, when we were growing up, it was kind of relegated to uh, the way many things pre-rock and roll were treated as kind of as a corny uh, era of our grandfather's time with uh, soft shoe routines that showed up here and there on variety shows on TV. But you knew, especially David, I think that it was a much grittier, more complex uh, form of entertainment and a place that, as our book shows, really revealed just how much was going on in America and America trying to uh, get in touch with itself, you know, its its identity of all these immigrants uh, as well as African-Americans. But as far as the graphic work, we also knew that uh, there wasn't an awful lot. There wasn't film uh, of these acts and there wasn't uh, documentation of an awful lot of important things that, that went on in this period. It's also, these, these are three very colorful, colorful people. So uh, we picked good people, I think. And they're all people whose act in some way was about presenting their physical body um, as, as a kind of spectacle in right. itself. Uh, in, in, in very different ways, but I think they all do have that in common. Right, their um, physical presentations, their their presentations were elemental to their art. And we needed to, to to show that, and also there wasn't a lot of material documentation of the core events 
in the book, the essential events in the book. So to do something where you know you just can't Google up the pictures or Google up film clips or Google up sound clips, where the only the only way to render them vividly and fully is to imagine some of it and and give it form through a combination of a text and drawing imaginative art really seemed to, to suit this. There were, there were some moments in the book where there's, there's just very little documentation of there's sketchy documentation of it. So we constructed it from, it's, it's rigorous nonfiction, but we constructed it factually from the evidence we had, but then gave it life visually through John's imagination. And that's, uh, that's why, the, that's why this content works. Mm-hmm. There's moments in the book where things like, you know, the the audience chatter during the acts is seems historically plausible, but probably not based on a specific uh, documentation of this is what this person in the audience said at this moment. And then his wife said to him and then he said to her those sorts of uh, more ephemeral moments of performance. uh, You're sort of given a little bit of wiggle room to fill in in a form like this, right? Well, yeah, in some cases, the, our policy was that all the text in the uh, boxes is, you know, literally rigorously precise. But in the constructed scenes where there are word balloons, that's constructed to the best of our ability. However, there are cases when some of that is has been precisely documented. And actually, the scene you're probably thinking of, which is the scene where a journalist – uh, took an actor, an actress, Italian actress, to to see Williams and Walker, and you know she said some very discomforting things, some very disturbing things. Uh, came verbatim from a newspaper account of the of the dialogue of the these people in the audience, because and there's also a reporter from the actor. Yeah. Yeah, John, what were you going to say? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were done. There's also a scene uh, that Andy may be thinking of also with another uh, man and woman talking, a young couple, about seeing Julian Elting. And uh, that scene was created by David. This is David's This is David's project. He wrote it and he researched it. He did all the blueprints for, the, uh, for all the things I had to do in terms of making uh, the panels. But it, in that uh, exchange, there's a young man and a young woman, a couple, going to see one of our principals, Julian Elting. And there is a back and forth, but I thought it was a very smart thing that David had done because it, it illuminated uh, what I felt about w- one of these three people that we did, uh, Julian Elting. He was a female impersonator, and I was wondering, j- just what's, what's the huge attraction of this uh, act? Because he was a giant star, and that's what the the uh, woman's asking the man: Is this all? Is this all Julian Elting does? Come on stage and pose and close? But she starts to she starts to be find some charm in it, and, and in in the clothing, and in in the this uh, Victorian you know uh, manner that Julian Elting presented. And the man, meanwhile, is kind of falling in love. He's smitten with this image of this uh, Victorian ideal. And um, up until the moment Julian Elting takes off his wig and reveals he is not, in fact, a, the, the ideal Victorian uh, uh, epitome. Uh, but the, the amazing thing about Julian Elting was that 
people went to go see him even after they knew he was a female impersonator, and they still uh, found him amazing and, and very attractive. And, and those, those, if I could say, I have one more thing about those three pages that they're a good example of why we chose not just the graphic form, but the dramatic form for the book, because we could have written an essay on what is it about Julian Elting? You know, why is he relevant today? And what's the, you know, the essence, the essence of his art? We could have done that in 2000 words of text, but there in just, in just two pages of word balloons and drawings, uh, we show that he, he represented like the fluidity uh, of, of gender and a gender confusion that, that, that turned both turned men upside down and inside out. So men are watching this person, they're conf- confronting a kind of sexual attraction and then having to deal with the fact that the, the knowledge that the person they had been attracted to is, was really a man. Which was really a very kind of radical thing for Elting to ha- to have subjected his his audiences to experience, and at the same time, the woman is experiencing this uh, this firsthand this idea that uh, gender is is not just performative but a construction, and that anybody could be a woman. You know, if this man could be an, a woman, and anyone can, and he's Elting. Later in the book, we show that Elting produced a magazine, the Julian Elting magazine, with beauty tips for women to show that, you know, just follow these rules and follow these steps. And, you know, and you can be a beautiful woman like me. (laughs) And and it's a man saying that. So it's crazy. Uh, And we tried to, there we could show it in dramatic form. The gender politics of Julian Elting are, really fascinating and and bizarre that he presents himself as an ideal woman but also as a, as something that is not natural that it's a sort of artificial creation of womanhood kind of implying that that's true of the ideal of the victorian woman in general that anyone can be a woman if you also you know spend a great deal of of work and time and money um kind of creating this ideal image and yet you also point out in the book that it's an image that is already uh, in some sense historical that this is Right. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's really a kind of Edwardian right. time, but it's a kind of Victorian ideal. So, what's the yeah? What's the kind of cultural work that that's doing at that time? Well, the, main, the main thing it's doing, as you just pointed out, is that his, his, what he's conveying is not an, uh, a, a, an ideal, of, an image of womanhood, but an image of the construction of womanhood. So it's really it's really all about the construction, which is a very 21st century idea. I mean, it's mind-blowing to, to think that he's innovating this thing that, that we're all living with. It's all around us today, this idea that uh, gender is fluid and gender is, is a construction and, you know, that it's something you could adapt and, and to and adopt, adapt by... By, you know, drawing on your impulses and following a set of codes and rules. And there he was a hundred years ago uh, doing it. And in a way that was, I think, much <clears throat> had much deeper impact than most people were able to come to terms with at the time. The writing about him at the time uh, was very superficial. 
So I, th- I think he had a, I think he had a, a profound impact that just took a while, had to sink in and then, you know, and resurface because it was just so radical at the time. And he really was, all three of them were radical, each in his or her own way. And John, I thought he did a great job of really showing the multiple. There were like three or Julian Alting's, and he showed them all. We show we show Julian Alting as a man constructing the female image, and then we also show this other construction, which is the construction of his the so called real Julian Alting. John, do you want to speak about that a little bit? The, right, I the, found this fascinating. Yeah. Off stage, it's a completely different story, right. which is right. another construction, right? Yes. <laughs> and then David and I, uh, we went to the library of the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center to try to find uh, new images uh, for us, and uh, we came across his uh, his magazine and also uh, images of him, you know, busy creating this He Man off-stage image, painting houses, working on cars, working on his farm, which was supposedly uh, his farm. So he was busy. He was busy making uh, Julian Elting the woman on stage and Julian Elting the man off stage. Uh, he, he was a busy guy and, and creating both sexes. We don't know who the real Elting was, and we can imagine, but he's essentially two constructions of sexual extremes, Sexual cliches, you know, the cliche of the Victorian woman and the cliche of the, you know, the rough and tough two-fisted man. He handed out these eight by ten glossies of him doing these hyper in these hypermasculine poses. But if you look really closely at him, the, the the falseness of them becomes clear in the in the image of him painting his house. If you, if you look at the paintbrush, there's no paint on the brush. You know, <laughs> he's up on the ladder holding a paintbrush and a can, but there's no paint on the brush. And I guess he really was under, he was under his hood. I don't know that he was doing anything under the hood of his car. And the farming image, which John really rendered beautifully, is just ridiculous. He's, he's, I guess he thinks he's butching up for the, for the image, but the joy that he's taking in, in playing dress up as a farmer really comes across and, and and it's that joy in dressing up or in posing that's that's what what's he's what he's most about. And there's even uh, a moment where Elting is insisting that he doesn't even particularly like dressing up as women. That it's uh you know it's a great way to make a buck, as if that's the only or the easiest way to make money in turn of the century America is by. There's a, there's a parallel to to Tangway in there that. By you know making by making that argument, this capitalist argument, uh, it, it gave him license to then dress as a woman and to and to do this radical thing, and he also expressed it in uh, this language of like the Puritan ethic of of hard work and how many how many hours <clears throat> it took him to squeeze himself into the corset, how much it hurt, how much he had to suffer in the course of this. He also talked about how much the, the dresses it cost and the labor involved in making his dresses. This cost $1,200, $1,272, and took three women five days to make. So he's gushing everything up in, uh, in, in these terms of, 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 of you know, labor, effort, and pain 
to just to justify to give him license then to do this wild thing. And there's a parallel to to uh, to Tangways. Maybe it's a loose parallel. Is that she had a, a image of wildness or craziness or madness that gave, that then gave her license to be free and libertine and uh, sexually aggressive and physically aggressive and kind of a proto-feminist ideal, but in a way that the audience would accept. They would accept that because she was nuts. Oh, well, you'd have to be nuts to do that. So by having this pose of madness, she had the freedom to do these things that were mad for their time. So they, they both came up with, with ways you know, to get away with doing this, this radical thing that they wanted to do. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about, uh, Ava Tangway's act. Um, her act was, it seems like largely kind of based around performing songs, but often in elaborate, uh, costumes. Um, what exactly were people paying to go see when they went to go see uh, a, a show where Ava Tangway was uh, headlining? Well, the show was all about Ava Tang. Her act was all about Ava Tangway. The songs were all about Ava Tangway and about her, the glory of Ava Tangway the, and the wildness of Ava Tangway, the unpredictability of Ava Tangway. She had like 30 songs that were variations on that that would be written for her. <clears throat> and then the whole act was, was uh, just a display of of energy, volatility, and unpredictability, she would she would run and hop and dance, and we say sing. Did you say sing? No, it's a liberal use of the term. She performed performed songs, but in the kind of, kind of with a kind of like uh, yeah. Oh, quasi like animalistic kind of, of uh, volatility. Uh, uh, this is a case where where words really do fail one, and it's made, and that's another reason why we thought of working in the visual realm because John's able to show her show. If you really want to understand what Ava Tangway's act, you kind of have to see what she did. John, you want to pick that up? Well, yeah, one of the challenges I thought of the book would be would be to try to uh, capture that. Um, because, she, you know, she was, uh, she was just a... I think that, that the main attraction for Ava Tangway was, was people going in and saying, what the hell is she going to do tonight? Because she was just so unpredictable and so sexy, and, and they didn't know it, you know? And you have scenes... Uh, David gave me great scenes of her racing across the stage, kicking over easels and doing somersaults. And, uh, uh, and then we, we have a, we have a humorous, uh, spread in the book, which kind of captures, uh, what she was all about. We, we have a comparison and contrast to her contemporaries where, uh, for example, the contemporary singer Elsie Baker was singing I Love You Truly. And uh, meanwhile, Ava Tangway singing I Want Someone to Go Wild with Me. And another uh, popular singer, Billy Murray, is crooning Come Take a Skate with Me. And Ava Tangway singing Go As Far As You Like. So and no one had really, really seen somebody li- like her 
she was, uh, uh, yeah, good people made comparisons to Lady Gaga. She was, she was the, the uh, unpredictable, uh, person really turning the Victorian ideal of Julian Elting's image upside down. And eventually marrying Julian Elting, though, sort of as a onstage publicity star. I, I don't know if they ever actually get – they announce their engagement on stage or something like that. Isn't that right? It, you know, it wasn't a betrothal. It wasn't a, a – it was an engagement. Very, very high-profile engagement. We And to, to show that this is not something we were – like pumping up for this for the drama of it for the book we devoted two pages to reproducing sections from the press clippings about this event all over the country so you know papers in the country were were talking about this for weeks you know the the betrothal of you know ava tangway the you know the wild woman uh the i don't care girl and Julian Elting, the female impersonator, the actual facts of what happened on stage are lost to history. So, you know, we we constructed that, but the reaction is documented by, you know, dozens of newspaper clips that then we cover. So we devote a fair amount of, amount of space to this. It's one of the way, one of the times in which the characters uh, of the book literally uh interact and come together. We didn't choose them because their lives were so closely entwined. That's not why we chose these three. We chose these three because the three important figures who were transformative, each in a different way. So here's three figures who were doing three different things or who all it made a difference. But there were ways in which they interacted, and that's chief among them. But there were other ways in which even Tang Wei and, and Elting interacted. They were both in, involved in the different versions of the same theatrical, the same musical comedy very early in their lives. They both played, you know, uh, they both played women <laughs> in the same sh- in different productions of the same show. Just um, Julian Elting did it better. <laughs> <laughs> John, then, one of the. One of the things I love about the part of the book about uh, Tangwe, John, is your illustrations of some of her uh, outlandish costumes. Could you talk a little bit about those and kind of what research went into uh, reconstructing those images? Yeah, well, that, those were some of the images that, that you can pull up uh, online. Uh, she had a, a flag costume with uh, flags all around her head and her skirt and a, a chandelier outfit. And uh, and then leading to a sequence, we have her in uh, a tight bodysuit outfit with 1909 Lincoln Head pennies, which had just come out. And then she proceeds to, in our few pages, to to uh, enact a kind of coin-operated striptease where she's taking these pennies off one by one and flinging them at the audience. And uh, that got a lot of attention from the audience. It also got... Uh, uh, some attention from uh, the police who wanted to, who thought she was being a bit, a bit too much. And we segue that aspect of her uh, career into uh, her Salome act, which took off all over vaudeville. Uh, David uh, writes about how everybody uh, jumped on the Salome uh, bandwagon and including uh 
George uh, Walker, who was Burt Williams' partner, including his wife, and even Burt Williams did a parody of uh, Salome. But as far as Eva, Eva Tangway went, it, I think she thought, as David suggested, that if she did something historical and, and maybe with some biblical references, she could take off all those veils a little bit with a little less maybe uh, uh, scrutiny from the law. Right. And that is definitely part of the appeal of her act is that it was, you know, considered uh, very sexy at the time, right? Outrageous, right, David? Yeah, outrageously sexy. The sexual, the, the, her sexual agency and the, the assertiveness of her sexual agency, which was one of the things that made her radical and an enormous influence to a wave of, of women performers to follow her and um, um uh, May West and and the whole generation of, of women in her wake, uh, and she was fearless. She one of her costumes, as, as John mentioned, was a was a bodysuit with with pennies attached to it, and she would pick each, you know pull, pull each plunk pluck pluck each one off the bodysuit and flick it in, into the audience. So she was virtually naked, uh, and you know and. Uh, you know, there, there was burlesque already existed, and it was a racier world uh, than vaudeville, but it didn't have the, the reach. It wasn't the most popular form of entertainment in America that uh, that vaudeville was. So, you know, to to do this in a vaudeville stage, where where families were, you know, were coming, where people from all walks of life were coming and from all classes and even from all, you know, all races were coming, uh, made her an enormously influential, uh, you know, the, and the idea of, of a woman in, in this position of sexual assertion, a woman to say, go as far as you like with me, you know, uh, I want to be as wild as an animal in the zoo was, it's it's hard to grasp how radical that is. I was I was thinking about if she existed today, if we wanted to communicate to somebody, how you know what was she doing? Well, you know, you'd say, well, by today's standards, uh, she'd make Cardi B look like like the singing nun. You know, she would, she would be doing. She'd probably. I'm going to be having sex on stage or, you know, we can't, we can't, we probably couldn't even imagine, you know, how far she would be pushing things if she existed today. To, to, and you need to sort of do that to fully grasp how radical her act was at the time. Yeah. And then she's also pushing against a kind of idea of a specifically white expectation of women as, you know, homemakers, as domestic, as non-sexual. I mean, it's, it's a very radical um, performance it from that context as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, without without any question, I don't think she probably thought that that way. You know, because it was a time of less enlightenment on uh, on racial issues as well as the gender issues we've been talking about so far. But that it, it doesn't make that any less true. And uh, and didn't she have a song that was kind of about her attraction to a, a black man? Um, yeah. in, a, in a way that's maybe, you know, I don't know if she uses the same vocabulary we'd want to use today, but that's in a, in, this, in a way a progressive gesture at a time when interracial marriage was illegal in uh, most states, I think. It was, and it was a hit, huge hit at the time, and a hit on sheet music. 
okay, well, you, you know, you hear that and you shrug your shoulders and say, well, isn't that quaint? People were playing sheet music. But if you, if you really think through the impact that that had, it's quite something. The song was called My Sambo. And it was a love song to a person of mixed race. Uh, and that was clear to anyone hearing the lyrics or listening to the song or singing the song. And singing the song is the way that most people experience that song at the time. So the song is sold as sheet music. It's brought home and it's, it's nothing to play. You don't play it on a, you don't, you're not listening to it on a, on a, on a record player. You're not listening to it on the radio. You're not playing it on a record player, let alone, you know, playing it on your, you know, on your device or streaming it. You have to sing it to experience it. So that means that the million people who bought that piece of sheet music are singing those words. So that means a million people of all races, a lot of white women, a lot of white women are internalizing that idea and expressing that idea. It's going literally through their bodies, you know, and they're, uh, and to another group of people hearing it. And that gives it a kind of power and a kind of effect that's very different from passively taking something in, like listening to a record, listening to a song on the radio. Uh, and that's the kind of hit that my, my Sambo was called, that my Sambo was. So it's, it's, it's hard for us 100 years later to, to, really, to really process how deep the impact of, of something like that was. Uh, may, that may be an unfortunate uh, time to transition to the next topic, but let's talk about uh, Burt Williams, the third figure that you write about in the book. Um, he was a fascinating figure. He was probably one of, if not the most successful vaudeville performers. And he was an African-American uh, man who performed in blackface, but but uh, had quite a bit of uh, ambivalence about doing so. And and, uh, you know, said that he would have preferred not to have performed in blackface, but that simply uh, the audience numbers were much greater when he did so. Could you talk a bit more about the kind of uh, ambiguous relationship that Burt Williams had to his own act? Yeah, of course. He's a key figure in the book. And you talked about it, it being kind of dis- being discomforting to turn to the subject of Burt Williams it always is. It always is uh, because his story is so complex and disturbing, deep, elementally disturbing. He was a he was a, a, a brilliant, uh, uh, bookish and profoundly gifted uh, black man from the from the Bahamas, who had a gift for performance, loved to perform, wanted to perform, and had had to find a way to perform where. He could, you know, tap this passion of his, tap this skill of, of his, make an impact, have maybe make a difference. And he did make a, a huge difference, but ha- had very limited options in what he can do, what was acceptable for a black man to do. So he, he performed in blackface, you know, a black man performing in blackface. So that why would a black man perform in blackface? Well, one reason is because there are very few opportunities for blacks to perform. And he pretty much had to perform in blackface. He certainly had to perform in blackface to be able to get work and to make a living. Okay. 
But after that, he was determined to deny whites exclusive exclusive privilege of defining blackness. So he played in, in blackface in part to shift the way the, the shift the, the nature of the performance of blackness and to shift the perception of black identity among white the members of the white audience by humanizing uh, the characters that he portrayed and shifting the content away from the most demeaning stereotypes like this st- I don't I wouldn't even want to talk about them but the the content of most minstrel performances by whites in a in performing the vile stereotype of blackness that that blackface was were you know horribly horrifically you know monstrously degrading and demeaning so Williams's portrayals were softer and more humanizing. They were centered on universal emotions and centered on universal universal issues, like the struggle of someone trying to make a living, the struggle of someone trying to uh, pay the rent, the struggle of trying to somebody in a card somebody in a card game. So he what he did was made seem incremental and it was incremental but it was radically significant because he did he did change the way the uh, black identity was represented on stage and he changed the way that black people were perceived by the audience there's no way to underestimate the significance of his transformation now, this posed very big challenges for john that i'd like to i'd like to him to talk about uh, well, let's see. And in, 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 and in addition to to what Williams did there, uh, we also show what he did with his partner George Walker in, in forming their own production company and and hiring black uh, composers and lyricists and actors, and which was a a big uh, a huge jump uh, in in American entertainment and. and to think that they could do that in that era is is really something. Um, but as far as uh, depicting Burt Williams, there's an early image uh, of Burt Williams on stage, and he has a panic attack, and the, the his, he's sweating profusely. The, the the makeup's coming down his face, and the uh, the white audience is 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 laughing even harder at it. And uh, later in his career, there's another painful uh, situation. And David and I talked about this when David first came, came up with the idea of these three uh, people in vaudeville to do. He told me about this scene. Uh, there's, uh, there was an actor's equity strike. And Williams is a huge star at this point, a, a huge American star. And, and the, the people involved in the strike don't don't tell him there's a strike going on. He gets made up for the the follies. He goes out on stage and the theater's empty. There's nobody there. Nobody told him. And he goes home and to his library and he tries to figure out where he belongs in America 
as a black man and where he belongs uh, in, in American entertainment. He kind of comes to the conclusion that he doesn't really belong. And uh, I didn't know, I, I didn't know about Elting. Uh, I knew there was a movie about Abby Tangway, but I, I, I didn't remember her name, but I knew of Burt Williams and I knew of this quote uh, by W.C. Fields, who was a good friend of Williams. And Fields said, uh, after visiting Williams and hearing about this awkward, act, actor's equity situation and him being left out in the cold and treated like that, he said, Burt Williams was the funniest man I ever saw and the uh, saddest man I ever knew. And it was part of my job in, throughout his life to show, to show that. Uh, to try to show that. And I think we, uh, David created a, a very well-rounded portrait of Burt Williams. We don't just get the Burt Williams you get when you get a Google image and maybe see Burt, Burt Williams in blackface. You, you come away, I think, with a, with a, uh, a real picture of, of somebody who, who really did something important in American entertainment and American society and who, who suffered the consequences for it. And I think One it's... Yeah, go ahead. No, please, no, no, again, Andy. I think it's worth noting too that not only was blackface by black performers common around this time and around the turn of the century, but it, it remained common for decades after the time that you're talking about. I mean, I, I recently watched the film Stormy Weather, which is I think 1942, and that's about this this kind of world of vaudeville, and there are black actors performing in blackface in that movie, and there were black performers in blackface in um in in shuffle along in the 1920s so so it's you know we we may be sort of uh embarrassed by this period in in our history now but it was it was not considered exceptional at all at the at his time right right that's no defense <laughs> we should be benignly right. embarrassed we should be, we should be horrified you know and traumatized by the by this terrible thing and we tried to one of the, one of our goals in the book was was to convey that horror, you know, when we when we see, we hardly ever see Burt Williams in blackface in the book. We only only render him li- literally in blackface in a few panels, but they're indelible. They're indelible. And John did a beautiful job of of, of ki- conveying like the inner ang- the anguish that uh, Williams must have endured by having to portray this caricature, this demeaning caricature of a of a slow witted, slovenly. Uh, african-american when it not only did not represent him but did not represent uh the black world and uh was 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 a product of pure white supremacy and racism and he had he subjected himself to it in partly in part to defy it and in part to you know incrementally you know enact some change but he still subjected himself to it and that was torturous to him and he ended up essentially drinking himself to death it was it's a tragic end that we devote a significant amount of space to in the book and in the end when he died and we should probably mention that it was 100 years ago this month he died march 20 1922 when he died um i don't know when this will broadcast but we're, we're recording this in march 2022 he died in 1922. Uh, 15,000 people came to Harlem for his m- memorial. 15,000 people of all of all races, and uh, he was so beloved, which is mind blowing. I don't think there's, there's probably no parallel to that. 
the time. Um, none of these figures were successes in film. Uh, part of the reason why it works so well in these media is that we don't have good surviving footage of, of many of them. Were they simply a generation too early or was there something about the kind of vaudeville sensibility that didn't translate well to this new medium? Well, some vaudeville stars uh, translated very well to to film. Uh, Chaplin was a music hall performer and Keaton grew up on the vaudeville stage in the act in the three Keatons act. He didn't know anything other than the vaudeville stage until he went into film. But for the most part, the big, the most of the big stars of vaudeville didn't were not able to translate uh, to film. And in the case of of these three, Tangway was just too big for the screen. It, you know, she just didn't work in close up and on screen. Nor for the same reason did El Tang. The illusion that he was able to create a of a woman on stage through lighting and distance and gestures and, you know, uh, and some magic, some, you know, I was almost said fairy dust, magic dust, uh, didn't work. Also, he was aging out by the time that film, you know, emerged. he tried to have a career as a straight actor in male roles in film, but he just wasn't that great. And Williams did make some very good films, uh, short films, but in blackface. And he just, by 1922, he was dead. He was, he died. Uh, It was a combination of all those things. And in in the case of both Elting and Tangway, they were both undone by the scale of their influence, I'd say more than anything. Tangway was so effect, so successful as an influence on women that she wasn't able to keep up with the women who took her innovations even further. And the same thing could be said of Elting, that after, after Elting came a wave of female impersonators who were doing something closer to the drag that we know today, you know, bringing parody and kitsch and camp into their performances and doing a more comic kind of kind of drag that made him seem outdated there was a full bore craze called the pansy craze which we give some attention to in the book that made julian elting suddenly very old-fashioned within a period of 10 years so it was a combination film they couldn't adapt to film their their the people who they influenced took their work further and made them seem outdated and their their time their time was up it's extraordinary to think that someone like bob hope or jack benny or george burns had the longevity that they did you know it was very very few people there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vaudeville acts and very few were able to adapt the way that they did yeah that's one of the things that's interesting reading the book is that there are names that kind of pop up that are people that we know that we know from their decades of success after vaudeville commenting on these people who are, you know, were it not for your book, I wouldn't have never uh, run across most of these names. So there's this interesting sense of it being both ancient history and, you know, just before yesterday. Yeah. Well, we would be more familiar with it if there, if there was a film record, uh, you know, of vaudeville, but, there is there is a little film footage, but but not much. And we did we made a point to drop in names like Bob Hopes on one of the bills, 
uh, Eddie Cantor plays a role in the scene. John, do you want to talk about that scene with Eddie Cantor and, and Williams? Is this a key scene? In the yeah. Book? Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, we, we do mention the Marx Brothers in passing, who who, uh, who took their their act and and bits of the uh, identity performance, like uh, Chico uh, took his his Italian act. And, but many of those early vaudeville acts, you wouldn't want to take anywhere mm-hmm. because they were so rough and so uh, scathing in their satire uh, about uh, race and about uh, different uh, nationalities. But we do have a scene, uh, uh, two men walking to a bar, uh, the big star Eddie Cantor and Burt Williams enter a bar and uh, – uh, I'm trying to find it here, actually, to refer to as I speak about it. Uh, and uh, Cantor on the spot, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> Cantor orders a beer, and uh, Williams, I got it. Uh, Williams says he'll have a shot of gin. The bartender, uh, the bartender says two bits for Cantor, and uh, that'll be fifty dollars for for Williams. Well, Williams reaches into his pocket, takes out his wallet, and says, here's 500 I'll buy a round for everybody. And uh, and uh, it turns the situation around, uh, uh, puts the bartender in his place and lets him know who's a little bit more important in, in, the, in, in America and in the world. But it, but it cost him $500 to make that point. <laughs> That's a trick you can and, maybe not do every day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it does underscore uh, a few things. Uh, Cantor's friendship uh, with Williams, uh, Williams uh, having to put up with things like that every day and, uh, and, and, and leading up to and also you know, kind of underscoring what he felt in that in what led up to uh, our scene in uh, the actors equity strike where just as big a star as he is that this is how he's treated so but 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 i like those pages because david david gave the the book is i can say this hopefully without sounding like i'm bragging because it's talking about david the the book is so rich uh with with imagery with with uh vaudeville imagery with new york imagery with sheet music with advertising for magazines uh with very serious uh racial violence uh in new york with uh with sex ava tangway with, with um as well as some funny things involving join elting's uh imaginings uh and and tall tales of his his uh, athletic prowess and, and his future plans to make a, a great palace of sorts of out in the southwest for artists and 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 a museum and so forth but because of all that i i was i was able to to use a, an awful lot of uh, approaches in my artwork because that the 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 visuals are so rich that i could use kind of a cartoony approach for the humorous stuff i could as the work got darker the the imagery literally got darker the hatching and cross hatching got darker uh, especially say in a scene where george walker burt williams partner is running from men you know trying to kill him and he and he hides in a cellar and uh, uh, and then 
counter to that, we we have those those uh, those funny comparisons of Ava Tangway's musical choices and her contemporaries. So uh, I'm not sure exactly where I started with this uh, with this commentary, but uh, but uh, along with uh, Burt Williams and Eddie Cantor in the bar, I, I David gave me an awful lot of great material to work with and and an awful lot of styles to work within. There you go, David. How's that? <laughs> well, great. Thanks you. Thanks to both of you for being on the program. I've really enjoyed talking with you about this wonderful book. I, I, I would really recommend this for anybody who's interested in, in theater history. This is a chapter of the history that I think is so often, you know, skipped over or ignored or misrepresented. So it's great to get a, a real sense of what vaudeville must have been like as this exciting kind of avant-garde art form in its prime we usually see it in its decline in something like gypsy or sunset boulevard but to see it you know when it was the hottest thing on the block uh it, it's really exciting i think you've done a great service in with this book thanks mm-hmm. so much for being on the program and uh, thanks so much for writing a revolution in three acts uh, thank Thanks you. for having me, Sandy. Appreciate it. Great to be here. And I have one more, uh, one more final parting question, which is: Could you give us a, a, a sense of what you're working on these days, or what's what's kind of your next project uh, in the pipeline? Well, I, I, I have two things. I just finished the song cycle, as I have another life as a librettist and a lyricist uh, in music, and that's done. And I'm working on a book for W. W. Norton about computational creativity, uh, a branch of AI. It's a whole. Di- it's something I've never written a word about before. It's a whole new field, and it's it's terrifying and kind of exhilarating challenge. So that's me. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I've been working on panel cartoons, just gag cartoons. After such a long book, it's really refreshing to just uh, <laughs> do something that small. And are, are you uh, posting those anywhere? Are those publicly available? No, I, I, I'm just gathering them up, uh, saving them up to, to send in uh, to publications in the next few months. Great. Well, I'll be on lookout for them. Thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. This was really fun. Thanks, Thanks Great again. To be here. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it.